Let's turn in God's Word to Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah chapter 7. This evening reading verses 17 through 25. Isaiah 7 verses 17 through 25. Isaiah 7, and beginning verse 17. Before we read God's Word, let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful once again for Your Word. And our Father, we pray that You would turn our hearts now to You. Grant to us an understanding of Your judgments, an understanding of the wicked way, that we would walk not in it, but walk after Christ, Your Son. Father, we pray also that you would humble me, your servant. Even I am myself weak to not even remember to pray for the children today. We pray that you would be with them, be with the mothers who have children in the womb, strengthen them and the children in the womb, and that they would come about safely to this world on this side of the womb. And you would grant to each one salvation in Christ your Son, even now if it would be your will. And now help us to hear your word and grant to us salvation in Christ your Son. We pray in his name. Amen. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 17. These are God's words. The Lord shall bring upon thee and upon thy people... And upon thy father's house, days that have not come, from the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, even the king of Assyria. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall hiss for the fly that is in the uttermost part of the rivers of Egypt, and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. And they shall come and shall rest all of them in the desolate valleys and in the holes of the rocks, and upon all thorns, and upon all bushes. And the same day shall the Lord shave with a razor that is hired, namely, by them beyond the river, by the king of Assyria, the head, and the hair of the feet. And it shall also consume the beard. And it shall come to pass in that day that a man shall nourish a young cow and two sheep. And it shall come to pass for the abundance of milk that they shall give. He shall eat butter. For butter and honey shall everyone eat that is left in the land. And it shall come to pass in that day that every place shall be where there were a thousand vines and a thousand silverlings. And it shall even be for briars and thorns. With arrows and with bows shall men come thither because all the land shall become briars and thorns. And on all hills that shall be digged with the mattock, there shall not come thither the fear of briars and thorns, but it shall be for the sending forth of oxen and for the treading of lesser cattle. Those are God's words. The question this evening is, in whom... Do you put your confidence? In whom do you put your confidence? The answer we will come to is that our confidence, of course, must be always in the Lord in Christ. This, friends, as you 
should know is a matter of utmost importance. Do you remember where we are here in Isaiah 7? King Ahaz of Judah has the northern kingdom of Israel and Syria coming up to attack them in Judah there. And Judah and King Ahaz are in great distress, worried, fearful about this, because they've already lost a battle to these before. And uh, they're coming up again. And the Lord sends the prophet to the king, Isaiah to the king. And through Isaiah, King Ahaz is promised that Jehovah will not allow this time Israel nor Syria to succeed against them. The Lord has promised Jerusalem would be preserved. The Lord gives every ground and warrant to trust Him. But Ahaz does not trust Him. To confirm the Lord's promise, the Lord commands Ahaz to ask for a sign. King Ahaz refuses to ask for a sign. And yet the Lord provides a sign anyway. In those last verses we read about Emmanuel. And He sends this sign. He provides the sign not to Ahaz but to all of God's covenant people that He will send Christ. A son will be born of a virgin, and that son's name shall be called Emmanuel, God with us. We know Jesus Christ sent to the earth, taking on human flesh to be the substitute of sinners and to deliver God's people from all their sins. The sign given is also a demonstration, verses 15 and 16, of the approximate time that these kings of Israel and Syria will be destroyed and removed a few years. And yet King Ahaz, we know, will put his trust and confidence not in the Lord, but in the king of Assyria, which will backfire against him. In our passage now, these two kings of whom Judah and King Ahaz were afraid, the kings of Syria and Israel, And they would be gone in a few years. This deliverance is promised by the Lord. And yet our passage this evening threatens a terrible judgment. Verse 17, it says, The Lord shall bring upon thee and upon thy people and upon thy father's house days that have not come from the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, that is when the northern kingdom separated from the southern kingdom in the time of Rehoboam. From the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, even the king of Assyria. And so the king of Assyria would be the instrument of Jehovah's judgment upon Judah. And this would come upon not only Judah, upon Ahaz, upon Ahaz's household, even though Ahaz descended from the house of David. So King Ahaz's ancestry, his family ties would not deliver him from the judgment of God. And yet, sadly, that's all too often the case that children of believing parents assume they are justified Christians when they rebel against the Lord because of where they come from. They assume they're on the Lord's side. That happens in the church today. It happens a lot in our own denomination today. It has happened throughout history, even in the Scriptures. People thinking, well, 
I'm part of the RPCNA, and therefore I'm saved. I'm in the church, I go to worship, therefore I'm saved. I'm a Christian, no. Romans 9 teaches us it's not based upon the physical children of Abraham. Ishmael was not of the elect, even though he was born of of Abraham. It's not of the mother either. It's not based on the mother as well, we learned there in Romans 9. It's not based on your ancestry. For many Jews often pleaded in the Gospels, well, my father Abraham, my father Abraham. And they're judged to the eternal torments. But so is the opposite way. If we think of the opposite of that, your parents, your ancestors could be the most vile pagan worshipers ever, and yet all who turn from their sins and believe in faith the gospel are saved. It's not based on your parents or your ancestry. Your ancestry will not deliver you from the judgment of God, and it will not keep you from God's blessing and salvation and eternal life. What will? What will deliver you? What will deliver you? Excuse me. What will not deliver you from the judgment of God? That's kind of what we're looking at this evening because of what we have before us. And we're going to consider where our confidence lies. The first point this evening, the path to ruin. The path to ruin. Or we can phrase it another way. If you don't want to escape the judgment, this is what you do. The path to ruin. How do you positively make your way to utter ruin in the eternal judgments? We often hear how to escape ruin, how to be saved, but we rarely hear about how we how to embrace ruin so that we can have it and have it forever. The answer to the question of how to positively make your way to utter ruin in the eternal torments of hell and judgment is to trust in everything and anything and anyone other than the Lord and Christ. That all those things, everything else leads to your ruin. You can trust in your family. You can trust in being a church member. You can trust in whatever you want. Everything leads to your ruin and eternal judgment unless you turn to the Lord in Christ by faith. Ahaz, instead of trusting in the Lord and the promised Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus Christ, the Redeemer, the Savior, Ahaz desired and wanted to trust in whom? We've already looked at this. He wanted to trust in whom? The king of Assyria. He did this, 2 Kings 16 so Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, saying, I am thy servant and thy son. Come up and save me out of the hand of the king of Syria and out of the hand of the king of Israel, which rise up against me. Ahaz in Isaiah 7, our passage, we remember the timing. In our passage, he had not sent that message from 2 Kings 16 yet, asking for the king of Assyria's help. He had not yet sent the message here in Isaiah 7. But he had already determined in his heart to do it. He has resolved at this point to do so and didn't want 
to be dissuaded from doing so. Even when Jehovah comes and he promises to deliver him from the kings of Assyria, from Syria and Israel. And then gives him a sign anyway of the coming one, Emmanuel. He didn't want the Lord's promises. He didn't want to be persuaded by them. He wanted to turn from them. And so we know that the Lord knew the heart of King Ahaz. Of course he did. He knows all things. He knows the thoughts and intents of our hearts. He knew that although Ahaz spoke of the Lord, it was the intention of Ahaz in his heart to go and ask the king of Assyria to be his help. And so King Ahaz was a hypocrite. He had no true faith in the living God. He had faith and trust in the king of Assyria, even though he had the name of the Lord on his lips. Right? We look back a few verses. He didn't want to tempt the Lord or test the Lord by asking for a sign, even though the Lord commanded him to ask for a sign. He had no confidence in the covenant promises of Jehovah. Psalm 44 says, If we have forgotten the name of our God or stretched out our hands to a strange God, shall not God search this out? For he knoweth the secrets of the heart. And King Ahaz is saying in his heart, I want the king of Assyria. Assyria. And the Lord says, you want the king of Assyria, then you'll get the king of Assyria. But not in the way you want him. You want him to be your help to deliver you from the kings of Syria and Israel. That's not going to happen. Listen again to verse 17. The Lord shall bring upon thee and upon thy people and upon thy father's house days that have not come from the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, even the king of Assyria. You want him in your heart. You haven't messaged him yet. You haven't said you're going to him. But I, Jehovah, know the Lord knows that days are coming that have not come before to Judah, even the king of Assyria is coming. Not as a friend, as you want him to be, but as an enemy. Not as a blessing, but an instrument of judgment. So verse 18, the Lord declares his sovereign power over the nations, over Egypt, who was another source of trust and hope for King Ahaz and for Judah. Verse 18, and it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall hiss for the fly that is in the uttermost part of the rivers of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. Egypt was well known for its flies because it was damp and marshy around that Nile River there in Egypt. And so the Lord, to illustrate, uses the flies of Egypt to show how he could summon the army of Egypt to oppose Judah. And for the bee in Assyria, Assyria was well known for its bees. And so these insects that were characteristic of Egypt and Assyria, Assyria, in whom Ahaz and much of Judah trusted instead of the Lord, the Lord uses that as a picture of how he would summon these foreign nations to come upon Judah and judge them. And how? How can he do that? Because he sovereignly rules over all nations. He sovereignly rules over all nations. He has given His Son. This morning we heard how Jesus, His Son, rules as our mediatorial King who rules for the sake of the church, for His covenant people. Jesus Christ rules as our priest King 
over all creation, over all nations for the sake, for the good of his people, even in the bringing in of his elect to himself. Our God sovereignly rules. Job 9, behold, he taketh away who can hinder him. Who will say unto him, what doest thou? He can hiss and summon the flies of Egypt and the bees of Assyria. And so he would summon the armies of these peoples against the covenant people of Judah, the, these nations as his instruments of judgment upon Judah. And verse 19, And they shall come and shall rest all of them in the desolate valleys and in the holes of the rocks and upon all thorns, upon all bushes. And the same day shall the Lord shave with a razor that is hired, namely, by them beyond the river, by the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the feet. And it shall also consume the beard. And so the picture presented us is that of the flies of the bees in verse 19 coming, filling the land so that every crevice, every little thing is filled, even the thorns, the bushes. And the, cra- uh, the cracks in the rocks, they're filled. And so in the same way, and particularly the Assyrians would fill the land and destroy the land. You'd be hard pressed to find space because these foreigners would be everywhere as they judge Judah. The Assyrians in this way would come against Judah, even like verse 20, as like a hired razor, children Children like your dads, your fathers, use a razor to shave, right? He uses most likely some type of razor to shave his beard, his facial hair, or his head. And here, like a hired razor, he hires, the Lord hires the razor to work for him. The Lord would use the Assyrians like a razor to shave Judah from head to foot, including the beard. Everything would be shaved, in other words. Everything would be shaved. And, and, and children, the Lord would use Assyria to shave Judah from top to bottom. He would lay the land bare in great desolation so that there would be nothing left in the land that was good. King Ahaz's unbelief seems to have set about a chain reaction of events. Even though the Lord's design the whole time, that would ultimately lead to the captivity of Judah by, by the Babylonians. And so from here on, things would never be the same. Verse 21. And it shall come to pass in that day that a man shall nourish a young cow and two sheep. And it shall come to pass for the abundance of milk that they shall give he shall eat butter, for butter and honey shall everyone eat that is left in the land. That's not talking about someone who's wealthy. Usually in Scripture when it's talking about, oh, they have cattle, they have sheep. It's talking about how wealthy they are. Not here. This is talking about a shortage of people. Of how few people of Judah, the covenant people of God, there would be in the land. And yes, of course, the wealthy would have a young cow and two sheep. But here, there are so few cows and sheep after the desolation. There are so few people also now that those who remain have a cow. And they have two sheep. The butter, they have it 
And they eat it because there's plenty to go around. Why is there plenty to go around? Because there aren't many people. These friends are the people who are left in the land after the destruction. End of verse 22, it says that. Verse 23, And it shall come to pass in that day that every place shall be where there were a thousand vines and a thousand silverlings or a thousand pieces of silver. It shall even be for briars and thorns. So, all right, so you go back to verse 21 and 22. And then you, about the, the cow and the two sheep. And you add in verse 23 for the context of the whole. You understand what's being said. This is not a good thing. This is not a good thing. And so that we go back to verses 21 and 22, knowing, end of verse 22, this is all that's left, the people that are left in the land. We know this is not a good thing. The cow and the sheep, the butter and the honey is not a good thing. They only have it because there are so few people around who have remained because all the other people have been destroyed or taken to captivity. That's the judgment of God. A piece of land that had a thousand vines, right? Grapevines. A piece of land that had a thousand vines in it and would have been worth a thousand pieces of silver. Now it would be overgrown with briars and thorns worth nothing. Why? Because there's no vine dresser. The vine dresser's been taken away. The people have been thinned out. They've been exiled. They've been destroyed. Even to death. So few left. The land that used to thrive and be of much wealth. Now overgrown and worth little. Verse 24, with arrows and with bows shall men come thither because all the land shall become briars and thorns. All the land shall become briars and thorns. The land that once flowed with milk and honey, a prosperous land that the Lord gave his people and the, the Lord, uh, the people rebelled against him. And now in his judgment, it is. Nothing. It was once full of tender vines. Now the land is overgrown. It's used, you see there, with, for hunting with bows and arrows against the wild beasts that roam around. Why are there wild beasts that are roaming around? Because it's desolate. There's, no one is there to care for the land. The Lord made us to be fruitful and multiply and care for the land. Now there's no people and so the land's not cared for. And there's wild things going all over the place and briars and thorns. What happens, friends, when there's no one to take care of property? What happens, you know, your home, a home, a yard, a field? What happens when there's no one to take care of it? It becomes overgrown. And... Within, you think of a home, it's quite amazing. You think of how some of you are homeowners, and you have a home, you take care of it here and there, a little bit, a little bit here, a little bit there, and it, it stays pretty good condition for many, many decades, if not longer. But a home not taken care of at all, in the matter of a few years, can be and usually is run down and uninhabitable. A roof starts to leak. I don't even know why. It's, it's amazing 
because you live in it and the roof never leaks, generally speaking. And then you're not there for three years or whatever and the roof is leaking. How did that happen? It's because no one's there. It's the Lord showing us of how important taking care of our property is. But when there's no one to take care of it, how uninhabitable these things can be and how horrible it is the the trees grow up in the middle of a living room that once was a living room or a kitchen. Verse 25. And on all hills that shall be digged with the mattock, there shall not come thither the fear of briars and thorns, but it shall be for the sending forth of oxen and for the treading of lesser cattle. Those hills where there once were thorns and briars, No more, because the people are fleeing to the hills from the Assyrians. People are now living there in the hills, and they're trying to cultivate and dig up the ground that's not good for things to be planted there to survive. Because the Lord was going to judge first by the king of Assyria, then later judgments. The Lord often gives wicked men what they want. He hands them over to themselves and their desires, like Romans 1. But in, not in the particular way they hoped for. You remember what the Lord said of Israel, Psalm 106. They soon forgot his works. They waited not for his counsel, but lusted exceedingly in the wilderness and tempted God in the desert. And he gave them their request, but sent leanness into their soul. He gave them their request and sent leanness into their soul. Do you think that you know better what you need more than Jehovah, the Lord? He may just give you what you want, but not as you wanted it. Ahaz thought, though, that if he had a deal with Assyria... All would be well. But this deal meant nothing. No arrangement of men can frustrate the hand of God. If God arises to judge, it doesn't matter what arrangements that are put in place by man, it shall not stand. The path to ruin is found in turning to everything and anything but the Lord. But matters get worse than that. Go back to verse 17. It says again, the Lord shall bring upon thee and upon thy people and upon thy father's house days that have not come from the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, even the king of Assyria. Ahaz had been, what, afraid of Syria and Israel, the northern kingdom. The Lord would deliver Judah from Israel and from Syria as he promised. But that was not a guarantee that all would be well. That's not a guarantee that all would be well. He was going to bring judgment to Judah at the hand of the one who Ahaz looked to and put his hope in, even the king of Assyria. And that judgment would be what? Ahaz was really worried about the judgment or the attack of Syria and Israel upon him and Judah. And the Lord promises I'm going to deliver you from that. But what awaited him was something far worse. 
Matters only got worse from there. It was worse than if Israel and Syria came up against them. And if Israel and Syria were successful against Judah, this would be worse. The judgment that would come through the instrument of Jehovah and the nation of Assyria. So Jehovah delivering Judah from Israel and Syria, that did not alter the fact that Ahaz and Judah's unbelief would bring worse judgments. In John 5, at the pool of Bethesda, a man who was invalid for 38 years. Children, can you picture what 38 years is? How long that is? That's about a little younger than I am. It's, you would think that's pretty old. That's a long time, right? And here is a man who is an invalid. That means, right kids, he cannot walk. Legs didn't work. And they didn't have wheelchairs then, right? He was an invalid for 38 years. So he had to crawl around on his knees and, and his arms moving him. And Jesus commanded him to take up his bed and walk, to stand up and walk. And he did. Just like the other miracles we've seen in, in Matthew's gospel. And so the Lord miraculously healed that same man. And what a deliverance from such a great affliction for 38 years. And now he can stand and he can walk. But then a few verses later, it says this. Afterward, Jesus findeth him in the temple and said unto him, Behold, thou art made whole. Sin no more. Lest a worse thing come unto thee. Lest a worse thing come upon thee. A worse thing. 38 years at that time in that society as an invalid. Pulling oneself through the dust for 38 years. And there's something worse than that kind of hell. There couldn't be something worse. And the Lord Jesus says there's something worse. Than that. Much worse. An eternity that is so much worse. An eternal judgment. So Christ saying there needs to be repentance. Not just your body healed. If there's no repentance, that's something worse than 38 years of your inability to walk. Something worse will come upon you. Christ said, cause them to take up his bed to walk and, and walk. But that's not itself a guarantee to the man's future happiness. Any more than the deliverance of Judah from the hands of Israel and Syria meant all would be well. We have seen it wouldn't be well. Because the king of Assyria would still come and, and the land would be destroyed. And so great would be that devastation that it would be worse than what happened to Judah even since the time uh, that Ephraim, Israel, the northern kingdom, ten tribes, which was led by Ephraim, fled away and divided itself from the southern kingdom of Judah in the time of Rehoboam. And they aligned themselves with Jeroboam. It would be worse than that. And this is the, the worst thing since that time, he says here. So what a calamity that was in dividing the covenant people of God. And we see how Paul is 
encouraging and exhorting his, the, the people, the churches, to be united of the same mind. How much of uh, judgment that is against God's covenant people that they divided. But here is the worst thing since that happened. That would happen in Judah. And so present deliverance does not guarantee ultimate safety. Present deliverance does not guarantee ultimate safety. Look at your own life. You may have been delivered from many troubles, afflictions, trials, etc. Such uh, those things are being delivered from those things are not a guarantee that all will be well for you. Some of you may have lived a pretty good life. There's nothing, and you say, there's really nothing I need anyway. I don't even need Christ. I don't need His Word, the Lord. But if things are going well for you now, even though you're saying, I don't need the Lord, that does not guarantee that all is well and that your future will be all good. The only guarantee is found in Jesus Christ, in the Lord, and turning to Him. If you have a, uh, Him as your Savior, then all is well and all will be well forever. There needs to be repentance, Jesus says. There needs to be a trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. Just as Ahaz and Judah needed, so do you. And so do I. No matter how much the Lord delivers you or others from danger and brings you close to death and brings you out of it and delivers you from it, brings you through amazing situations unto the side which is good and going well for you. Without Christ, you will die in your sins. And worse things than you could ever imagine will come upon you. And yet right now, there's still hope, friends. If you have ears and you, you still listen, there's, there's still hope. What we have already heard, there's still hope found in the sign, Emmanuel. There is still hope found in him. There's still hope for the true people of God. These things are brought before Judah, the covenant people of God. The promise of Emmanuel. And Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria. And Ahaz, King Ahaz is being confronted with this. Emmanuel, God with us. Or Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria. And... He hears about Emmanuel, God with us, and he says in his heart, no, Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, that's where safety is found. That's where safety is found in him. And the king of Assyria would be his undoing and his destruction. A true people of God, a holy seed, the substance of Judah trusted not in Assyria or their king, the true people of God amongst the remnant amongst them. They did not trust in the king of Assyria, but in the Lord and the promised Savior, Jesus Christ. Even Emmanuel, they would live through strange times. It's like all the prophets are godly examples of the true people of God in those times. Judah would be so afflicted. They'd be chastised. They'd be judged. We read in chapter one, Judah would from the sole of the foot, even to the head, there is no soundness in it but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. And yet there is still a godly remnant. 
A remaining preserved people whose hope was in the Lord, His promises in the Messiah, Emmanuel to come, their Redeemer. Our relation to God is all important, friends. Ahaz trusted in the politics, the international foreign affairs. He thought he had to get that right for Judah to be safe and delivered from, from Israel and Syria. He needed to make sure that he and Judah were on the winning side. And so he had not aligned himself with Israel and Syria against Assyria. He worked it out. That wasn't the way to go. That's not the way to be delivered. It's not the way to be saved. If they come against me, Syria and Israel, Assyria, maybe Egypt would deliver them. He thought he was looking out for himself and the people of Judah, but he was utterly wrong. He was going the opposite way. Doing this put him, friends, at enmity with God, hostile to God, And who wins that battle? God versus Judah. God versus Ahaz. Who wins? God every time. He despised the truth of God, the promises of God, the signs of God, the commandments of God. Even when he heard the sign that was to be given, he rejected it. Because he rejected the Lord. And here he was checking to make sure At the beginning of the chapter, checking to make sure they'd have their water source as the battle began, as it came. And he was doing everything he could to make sure Judah was safe. Everything but the only thing that was needed. He was doing everything that he thought would bring them safety and deliverance, except for the one thing that needed to be done. And so King Ahaz was a fool. Rejecting the Lord, that's a fool. And there are lots of fools in this world. Maybe you're a fool like him. But you don't need to remain a fool today. Christ is calling, calling you to be not like King Ahaz. To not turn everywhere else and every other thing and peoples. But unto him alone. Turn unto him alone today. Because only turning from Christ leads to your ruin. And if you keep turning from Christ, it will get worse. It might seem better in the the short term, but long term, very bad. Even unto eternal destruction, shaved off. But Christ freely offers to you today, even if you're a fool like King Ahaz, He freely offers the way of perfect and eternal deliverance from your sins in Himself. He offers to to all peoples to come and take hold of Him and be saved. Today, call upon Christ to save you, like uh, his disciples did this, this morning. When they're in the ship and the waves are coming over the boat, and they cried out to him, save us. And he will. Believe that he's able to save you, even to the uttermost. He does if you turn from your folly and your waywardness, which is much like Ahaz, uh, what was much like Ahaz, and come up unto him, trusting in him, and his substitutionary work on the cross, his perfect sinless uh, life, Jesus' sacrifice for your sins there on the cross, dying in your place, raised under your justification, raised so that you could be righteous in the sight of God and have peace with Him. Friends, come on to Christ today. Do not put 
upon yourself ruin and that which is even worse, eternal torment. But seek life in Christ Jesus. And that for the Christian too. Seek life in Christ Jesus. You might think think, think things are going well, but... And then you start doing things for yourself and you start trusting in yourself or other things in the world and you become wayward. Turn back today or things will get much worse, even though they might be going really well right now. Things will get much worse. Seek life in Christ the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, thank You again for Your Word. We're thankful that You teach us how to go in the path of ruin, that we would turn from it. That we would turn away from the way King Ahaz went. Trusting everything and anything but You. And so, Father, we pray that You would uphold Your people. And You call all those who are fools to Yourself and make them wise. Make all us wise, for we are fools ourselves in our sins. Every time we turn from You, we are acting like the fool. But turn us today, and we might know with certainty uh, the life we have in Christ Jesus, your Son. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.